0: Thank you for tuning in to Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I can't thank you enough for all of you who keep tuning in episode after episode, and to all my patrons who basically fund the show, and to all of you who leave ratings and reviews from the bottom of my heart. I thank you. You all give me a platform to continue this hobby that I absolutely love doing. I don't know exactly how or why a biographical subject makes it on my list, I definitely say no to way more than those I say yes to. It's not exactly a science or a calculation. It's definitely not through any prior knowledge of these people. I learn who these people are when I research them in real time. And so as to why I pick a subject, the best thing I can call it is an instinct. One thing I promise to myself and all of you is that there's no agenda here. We are simply learning about real people and all of their faults. What? is it about mankind's relationship to religion? It clouds everything. It shades everything. It illuminates everything. With this being a biographical history podcast, I find if you can understand a subject's faith, you can understand the subject. And without this missing piece to the puzzle of a life story, you might learn a few names and dates, but you will learn nothing of that person. For our subject today, understanding his faith, on face value, seems quite simple. And yet, the more you understand him, the more complex the relationship with religion gets. The story of this man's life is very much the clash of Christianity and paganism, and woe to our subject for being caught on the edge of both. For his complexity and his personal tragedies, his demons and his virtues, his attempt to be one of the greatest agents for change, and yet, in the end, changing nothing. This subject is truly one of my favorite people in all of history. And so, without any more delay, you will now learn about who Julian the Apostate really was in The Last Pagan. Mm. Mm. In northeastern France, there's a city called Saint Elophi. It takes its name from an ancient saint of the early Catholic Church named Saint Eliphius, or Saint Eliphius, depending on who you ask. Saint Eliphias is famous not for being one of the many people in this period who converted throngs of souls into the Church of Christ, but he is more famous for the way he died. The story goes that on October 16th, 362 A.D., the Roman emperor, was traveling Gaul at the time, and he came upon Eliphias on the banks of the river Ver, preaching and converting. The emperor, incensed at the sight of this follower of the Galilean in his territory, approached the saint and rebuked him for his beliefs and actions. When Eliphias replied in defiance, Julian unsheathed his sword and aimed to slay Eliphias right then and there. But Eliphias entreated the emperor that he may be allowed to pray for one hour before he is executed. The emperor obliged, and he even asked Eliphias where he would like to be buried, and he promised that he would accommodate his post-mortem wishes. Eliphias raised his hand into the distance, and he pointed to the top of a hill far off in the landscape. After the saint had his hour to make his peace with his god, the emperor gave order for him to be decapitated, but after head was removed from body, something very strange happened. Seeing a body quiver and shake after such a violent trauma was probably a usual sight for the Roman soldiers present for the occasion. But they knew something totally out of the ordinary was taking place when Eliphius' headless corpse began bringing itself to its feet. Once erect, it knelt down and lifted up its own recently removed head. And the saint, with his head tucked in his arms like a football, then walked himself to the top of the hill where he had requested to be buried and finally laid down to rest for good. Now, in passion stories from the cults of early Catholic saints, there are a lot of rather unbelievable tales. Those aside, this story of St. Elefias is rife with historical inaccuracies, not the least of which is that the Roman emperor at the time was not in modern-day France, but in Antioch. But there's something more critical amiss here, something a bit wrong with the personality of the Roman emperor in this tale. For though he hated Christians... He was not known to kill them, which makes him particularly unique when compared to his predecessors, who, from time to time, massacred Christians in droves. What makes his emperor even more unique is that he's also a baptized Christian, albeit one who ultimately rejected his faith. For you see, his uncle was Constantine the Great, the first Roman emperor to be baptized. Constantine's nephew, the one who supposedly had Eliphias killed, should have been the third Christian emperor, but he was altogether something quite different. Julian the Apostate was born Flavius Claudius Julianus on November 17, 331 AD in Constantinople. Now, today we talk a lot about the effects of childhood trauma. We understand to a degree how vulnerable a child is to upheavals in their life. We know the long term effects are real. When Julian was six years old, his uncle, the aforementioned Constantine the Great, the Roman emperor who is quite possibly the most consequential figure in human history, he died. And he was, in some contemporary and modern views, nothing short of a saint. The power vacuum left behind by his death was filled with blood. Julian's father was murdered. Julian's older brother was murdered. Six of Julian's cousins were also murdered. Only Julian and his half-brother Gallus were spared. Julian because of his age and his half-brother because of his weak health. Every single adult male figure in this six-year-old boy's life was butchered, violently ripped from his life. The man most people hold responsible for this Michael Corleone-style purge of competitors to the throne was none other than the man who would become emperor, Constantius II, and cousin of Julian. Constantius, like his father, had abandoned the pagan ways of old and become a Christian, and he continued to move the fledgling faith into positions of prominence in the empire. And I just want to pause here a moment. It's easy when we're talking about events from so long ago, over 1600 years in this case, to glaze over the details of this person dying and that person dying. But think about your child when they were six, or think about your younger sibling at the age of six. Think about your nephew or your niece or yourself. Think about the innocence that is a six-year-old. Think about just how dependent they are on the adults around them. And for a six-year-old boy, the person who is arguably the most critical figure in his life. His father was murdered. Historians tend to go back and forth about whether Constantius ordered the massacre or simply passively let it happen. Either way, I'm not sure it matters, but one thing is clear. He wanted his younger cousin who survived the massacre out of Constantinople and separated from the royal family and far away from public life. Gallus was sent to Ephesus and Julian was sent to Nicomedia in modern-day Turkey. There he was placed in the care of a local bishop, a man named Eusebius. But Julian's actual day-to-day care and education were left up to a Germanic eunuch pagan named Mardonius. And thus, for the next five years, the young Julian learned everything there was to know about Socrates and Plato, Aristotle and Homer. Mardonius became not only his tutor, but his moral mentor as well. And by the time Julian was 11, he could walk and talk like a philosopher. All he needed was his beard, which would come in time. Around this time, Emperor and cousin Constantius had the young Julian transferred to a private estate in Caesarea. Here he was reunited with his half-brother Gallus, but the two just had different dispositions and never really became all that close. Other than Gallus, Julian's only company were slaves. The emperor absolutely forbade him from leaving the estate or receiving any visitors. Luckily, the local bishop had a huge library, which Julian made constant use of. The library, of course, had volumes regarding Christian faith and morals and perhaps even some Saint Passion works. But like any respectable library, it was also full of the great pagan authors. Julian, therefore, was no doubt raised a Christian in a Christian household where he attended Mass and venerated the martyrs. But he was likewise supplying himself with an alternate education in a more nostalgic faith. The faith of his fathers, you might say. To put a finer point on it, in Julian's own writings, he says that by the time he was 20 years old, He had fully abandoned Christianity and adopted the faith of the pagans. As the young man grew in body and mind, his cousin the emperor loosened the travel restrictions placed on him, and as he traveled the Near Eastern part of the empire, he devoted himself to the study of rhetoric and Neoplatonic philosophy. He even befriended a couple philosophers named Maximus and Priscus. Maximus, in particular, was influential on Julian. He talked with the young man about the link between philosophy and mysticism, and how through philosophy one could influence the gods and divine the future although many historians see Maximus as nothing more than a con man, and few really regard him as an authentic philosopher. Nonetheless, Julian held Maximus in high regard. He personally credits Maximus with showing him how only the ways of the old gods could lead to true happiness. And so, for this young Christian noble, his apostasy had begun, though it wasn't yet public. By 354, Julian's half-brother Gallus was made Caesar, which... At this time, the emperor was short of the title of Augustus, which was reserved for his cousin, Constantius. At its base level, Caesar still reported to an Augustus. But Gallus had fallen out of favor with his uncle. Rumors of mismanagement and corruption on the part of Gallus had reached the emperor, and so Constantius allegedly had him killed. Though the history is a bit foggy on exactly how this went down, the story is he recalled Gallus back to Constantinople and had him executed during his journey. There's also evidence to suggest that Julian's life was in danger as well during this time. He was accused of disobeying the emperor and violating his house arrest orders. But allegedly, the emperor's wife, Eusubia, convinced her husband to make amends with his younger cousin. Julian then, presumably at the order of his own cousin, was sent to Athens to continue his studies. One of the problems with killing your whole extended family is you have few people to rely on when times get tough. And for Constantius... Times were getting tough, especially in Gaul. Revolts from within and attacks by barbarians from without were becoming a serious threat to the territory, and he needed someone he could trust to go there and get control of things. And so after just a few weeks of studying in Athens, Constantius called on one of the only family members he had left. On November 6th, 355, Julian was appointed Caesar in Gaul by his cousin Constantius, and no one was more shocked than Julian himself. He had been preparing himself for a life of philosophy, not military conquest. By now, he even looked like a philosopher. He had grown the philosopher's beard, he dressed in the philosopher's robe, and in his own words, he described his sudden transformation, quote, Some of them, as if they were in a barber's shop, cut off my beard and dressed me in a military cloak and transformed me into a rather laughable soldier, at least in their eyes, End quote. Constantius expected nothing more of Caesar, Julian, and Gaul than to simply hold the territory, and the trusted subordinates would surely keep him in check. But after arriving in Gaul in late 355, Julian proved to be an adept politician and military leader. He immediately launched a campaign against the Alemanni, the Germanic tribes that threatened the region. And he had his successes and failures on campaign, but as the war raged, Julian's military dominance became apparent. He chased the Alemanni back across the Rhine and even passed it, totally subduing the troubling tribes. Julian's decisive victory was at the Battle of Argentoratum, in which his 13,000 soldiers defeated an Alemanni tribe three times its size and drove them from the battlefield, and for the Romans' part, their casualties were negligible. It was Roman military tactics at their best. After the battle, and his soldiers, now fully endeared to him, proclaimed him Augustus, a title reserved for Julian's cousin alone, and Julian wisely reproached his soldiers and rejected the title. Returning from battle with his army to winter quarters in Paris, He found the local Franks to be in revolt and swiftly put them down. The Roman Empire was back in control of Gaul. Julian fought domestic battles too. With military stability again in the region, local politicians sought to raise taxes on the populace. and Julian, the victor over the Alemanni, adamantly opposed the tax increases and used his popularity to prevent them from going into effect. After a few years in Gaul and after his military successes, Julian had acquired a few titles, that of Alemanicus Maximus, and that of Francicus Maximus, and that of Germanicus Maximus. The works of soldier and historian Ammianus Marcellinus, who served under Julian in Gaul, gives us a glimpse of the type of persona Julian was cultivating during these years. In sagacity, he was reckoned to be the reincarnation of Titus, son of Vespasian, In the glorious outcome of his campaigns, he was very like Trajan. He was as merciful as Antoninus, and in his striving after truth and perfection, he was the equal of Marcus Aurelius, on whom he endeavored to model his own actions and character. In Paris in the spring of 360, with the soldiers and the populace fully behind the savior of Gaul, they again attempted to bestow the title of Augustus upon the Caesar, and this time he accepted. Around this time, Julian's life met personal tragedy. His wife, who was also the sister of the emperor Constantius, which yes, also makes them cousins, died in this very same year. 5 years earlier, she had carried a son for Julian, but the child died shortly after birth. There were rumors, of course, of mischief around both deaths, with Constantius and his wife being blamed, though no one will ever know for sure. It's not entirely clear how all of this affected Julian, but as a refresher, So far in this young man's life, his father, brothers, half-brother, wife, and only son had all either been murdered or died under mysterious circumstances. For a man who had been struggling with his faith to see such people ripped from his life, ostensibly murdered by devout Christians, would no doubt leave an indelible mark. After the death of his wife, pagan philosopher Labanius and friend of Julian tells us that he never again took a wife or sought really any female companionship. He said that he would, quote, have ended his days knowing nothing of sexual intercourse save by reports. As it was, he went into mourning for his wife and never again touched another woman. End quote. As we have already mentioned, by this time Julian had fully apostatized, though not publicly. He wrote of his pagan beliefs to his friends like Libanius and secretly made sacrifices to the gods of old and even attempted divination by interpreting animal entrails. But in full view of everyone else, he was a Christian. On January 6, 360, Julian the Apostate visited a Christian church and partook in all the public ceremonies of Epiphany. This is probably a good time to pause and reflect on where Christianity was at this point in history. It was a mere 50 years prior when Julian's uncle, Constantine the Great, attributed his victory at Milvian Bridge in Rome to the Christian god. On the eve of battle, Constantine claims to have had a vision in which he was instructed to affix the Christogram to his warrior's shields, the X and the P, which make up the first two letters of Christ in the Greek alphabet. He was told in this vision that by this sign he would conquer, the instructions he obeyed, and conquer he did. Christians were a strange breed to the traditional Romans and Greeks. Though they claimed heritage from the Jews, this new faith knew no ethnic boundaries like Judaism. And unlike Mediterranean paganism, it was far simpler in practice and procedure. Gone were the deities of every nook and cranny of life. The pantheon was suddenly replaced with the one God. Christianity had a semblance of order compared to paganism, and its followers were not insular hermits. They were everywhere, one on every corner preaching in the name of Christ, It was a dynamic faith that rolled up its sleeves and preached salvation to the destitute, the lowest and poorest, a sure mark of a common early Christian, were his works of mercy. In short, the recognition of this new faith represented a complete shift in attitude from one end of the empire to the other. This newfound status was a far cry from the days of being fed to the lions for sport and burnt alive upon stakes to keep illuminated the streets of Rome. Such drastic changes were of course met with hostility. Nonetheless, Constantine's son and cousin of Julian, Constantius, was an avowed Christian, and he continued his father's legacy. There was still many holding on to the old faith during the reign of Constantius, but in just a few years, they had seen their tradition literally crumble into ruin. Statues and temples were replaced with crosses and churches. Julian, for whatever reason, had found the old faith more favorable than the new, but for the moment, he had other matters to contend with. By the end of 360 in Gaul, he was openly referring to himself as Augustus and minting coins that said the same. News of this came in the form of a letter from Julian himself that informed his cousin Constantius that the soldiers had proclaimed him Augustus. Julian asked Constantius to accept the situation as it was, but Constantius was incensed at the audacity of his pathetic cousin. However, for the moment, he was embroiled in a fight against the Persian enemy on his doorstep, and they were the greater threats and he resolved to deal with Julian in due time. But Julian, as we have seen, was no fool. He knew that, at least for now, his soldiers would do anything he asked of them. He had momentum on his side, and he was inclined not to waste the opportunity. Thus, he set out to attack Constantius directly. This may, at first, seem like double-dealing on the part of Julian, but think back to his childhood. His cousin, the emperor, had, in Julian's estimation, ordered the execution of basically his entire family. And so... It's plausible that he was simply biding his time for the right moment to exact his revenge and become sole emperor at the same time. Hearing that Julian was indeed marching his Gallic army towards Italy, Constantius was forced to abandon his Persian campaign and fight his cousin for the imperial throne. Julian split his army into three sections and he sent each of them on separate paths towards Italy. His own division sailed down the Danube, overtook a city controlled by Constantius' supporters in what is today Serbia, and then into Bulgaria, where his other two armies would meet him. For control of Bulgaria was critically strategic to a siege on Constantinople. But just when it seemed like the most epic blood-feud war in human history was about to take place, the fates had their say in things. On November 3rd, 361, Emperor Constantius died of a fever, and allegedly named Julian as his rightful heir before he passed. And so there it was, on December 11th, Julian walked into Constantinople as sole emperor of Rome. The first thing he did was oversee the Christian burial of his cousin, and he had him laid to rest at the Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople, as was his wont. After this, it was to matters of state, and without getting into the weeds too much, he undid much of the bureaucratic layers of government that proved to be a nest of corruption. He returned a substantial amount of autonomy back to the local cities and districts, and further, he reduced taxes and sweeping executive actions. He reorganized and reduced the opulent imperial household, and he attended Senate proceedings with an earnest interest, and he was insisting on being treated as first among equals. He presided over juridic disputes, met with foreign delegates, and invested in the defense and beautification of the new Rome, Constantinople. At night, Julian spent long, dark hours penning letters to his friends and writing various essays, especially on his theories of paganism. In one infamous essay... He chopped down his uncle Constantine the Great by a couple of notches for not adhering to the pagan rites and honoring the ancient gods. He also, and this is critical to understanding Julian, sharply criticized his uncle for being a kind of father who had raised sons that massacre their own extended families in the name of power. He calls him a seducer, a murderer, a sacrilege, and it's a damning charge against a man venerated as a saint by the Eastern churches. Author Hans Karel Tietler says of Julian that after becoming emperor, he threw caution to the wind. Where once it was unthinkable to criticize the great Constantine, now it was Julian's modus operandum. In his own words, quote, That on my father's side I am descended from the same stock as Constantius on his father's side is well known. Our fathers were brothers, sons of the same father, and close kinsmen as we were, how this most human emperor treated us. Six of my cousins and his, and my father who was his own uncle, and also another uncle, and both of us on the father's side, and my eldest brother he put to death without a trial. With matters of state handled to his satisfaction, it was time for Julian to begin crafting what he saw as the first half of his legacy, the reinstitution of Roman paganism. Where Constantine the Great outlawed the burning of sacrificial victims to the gods, Julian once again permitted and encouraged them. Pagan temples and altars, destroyed or fallen into disrepair, were ordered rebuilt anew. The temples should be opened, and sacrifices brought to their altars, and the worship of the old gods restored. And he led by example. It was said that twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, Julian offered sacrifice. Property seized from pagan temples by Constantine and Constantius were returned to their original owners. The privileged status of Christian clerics, tax exemptions, and seats on various municipal councils were all revoked. The clergy were once again regular Roman citizens. And in a move that was incendiary for all Catholics, Julian brought back the exiled bishops and priests of the outlawed heretical Arians. On its face, allowing Arians and other heretics back into the fold was proclaimed as a move towards what we would call freedom of religion. But many historians insist that Julian's motives were less benevolent. For he knew that bringing these people back into the empire would only sow discord and violence among those he now dubbed followers of the Galilean. Soon, the Catholics and the Arians were lynching each other's bishops in the streets. Thus begins an era in which we get to several passion called springing up around the various saints who were said to be martyred by Julian, or at least during Julian's time. The problem is that the surviving manuscripts are dated hundreds of years later and often contain the same historical dilemma that our headless martyr at the beginning of this story had. Julian was, in most cases, nowhere near these people when they died, but also, and I think more critically, he was too smart to begin creating martyrs. He was as learned in the Christian faith as anyone, and he knew that the blood of martyrs were the seeds of faith. With each death, a thousand more Christians would spring up to replace them. Julian's method of beating the Galileans was more cunning than the bloody ways of his predecessors. In his mind, he imagined he could simply legislate them out of existence, much in the same way that had been done to the pagans just a few years ago. So he brought back to his throne the title of Pontifex Maximus of the Pagan cults. Though this title had existed before with regards to the pagan traditions, he, in effect, was establishing a new church, a pagan church, one that was to be more systematized than what had existed before, He created a new priesthood with rules prescribing the call to a pious life, the immersion in academics and philosophy, primarily Pythagoras and Plato, Aristotle and the Stoics. This priesthood, too, of course, would carry out the duty of sacrificing to the gods, but Julian added a novelty to this pagan priesthood, something borrowed from the Christian priesthood. They would devote themselves to the poor, to the caring for the sick and the destitute. As a once-practicing Christian, Julian knew firsthand the power of charity. But as I said, the reinstitution of pagan Rome was only half of what he wanted his legacy to be. The other side of his legacy was to be the conqueror of Persia, to be the one who once and for all put an end to the pesky adversary to the east. And so in the spring of 362, Julian left the city of his birth and the seat of his empire and moved his base of operations to Antioch where he could prepare for an invasion. On his way from Constantinople to Antioch, he stopped at a famous shrine to the mother of the gods, where he presented a hymn that he had written for the event. By July of 362, Julian finally reaches Antioch, where he runs into a military commander named Artemius. Artemius, it is said, had come to serve Julian in his war against the Persians, just as you would expect a loyal career military man to do. But when he finally comes upon his emperor, he finds him on a public platform questioning two priests, and Artemius himself was a Christian, and he found he could not hold his tongue. Quote, "'O oh emperor, why do you so cruelly torture men who are holy and consecrated to God and force them to abjure their own faith? You should realize that you too are a man liable to the same suffering, with a share in the same type of physical pains, even if God has made you emperor.' If, in fact, it is from God that you have your empire, and not the devil, the evil prince of darkness, who has sought you out against us, just as once he sought out and claimed Job, and in claiming you in his wickedness, so as to winnow the wheat of Christ, and sow a crop of weeds. But his efforts are in vain. End quote. Julian was totally astounded and caught off guard by Artemius, one of his own generals, no less, who dared contradict him. Quote, who is this scoundrel, and where does he come from, that has spewed forth such a torrent of oratory before me on my platform? End quote. Now this interaction is most definitely an invention. The author goes on to have Julian accuse Artemius of being responsible for the death of his brother Gallus, which we already know that Julian already knew that this was simply not the case. But again, these are manuscripts from hundreds of years later. Artemius may well have mouthed off to a pagan superior, and was probably killed as a result, as he is traditionally proclaimed as a martyr, but it being at the direction of Julian is highly debatable. Julian was, in fact, recorded many times to personally admonish those under him who inflicted harm upon the Galileans. There were even some Christians who held him up in high esteem, especially those once deemed heretics. Those who had once had their churches destroyed, Julian allowed them to rebuild, and they never forgot him for it. One breakaway group allowed back into the empire called the Donatus endeavored to destroy a rival Catholic congregation. Upon finding the door locked, they broke a hole in the roof and threw tiles down upon those seeking refuge inside. Two were killed, and many more were injured. These Donatus, angry that they had been exiled by the Catholics, came back with a vengeance. They cast the sacred bread and wine into the streets. They poured out liturgical ointments on the floor. They beat to a pulp the men of the congregation. They raped the nuns. They cut open the bellies of the pregnant. They pummeled the children to death. By the order of Julian, the Roman authorities were not to intervene. All over the empire, because of Julian's design to allow all forms of Christianity to have a voice in the public square, Christians were killing Christians. Witnessing the frothing hatred between Christian factions, Julian was recorded by Ammianus to say that, quote, No wild beasts are such dangerous enemies to man as Christians are to one another. Quote. As Julian became more infamous among Christians of his day, he became more famous among pagans. But soon, he was known for all by his massive and extravagant sacrificial offerings. An inscription in Libya says that on a single day, he once sacrificed 51 bulls and 8 goats. According to Libanius, quote, He in 10 years offered more sacrifices than all the rest of the Greeks put together, quote. His extravagant sacrifices did result in something of a PR faux pas. He acquired the label of sacrifice mad, and a bull burner, and a seller of meat. Even the pagans saw the slaughters as superfluous. Nonetheless, the act of sacrificing became a central point of contention for Julian. I think, and this is just my own observation, I think because the act of sacrifice is so central to the Catholic faith, which Julian undoubtedly was aware, he sought to ignite the same centralized fervor in his own paganism. Something like a single act that could be a rallying point for the pagans. And everywhere he went, he was sure to make a public display of sacrifice to the pagan pantheon. And he castigated those who refused to follow him. But, and this is a critical point, he never went so far as to punish those Galileans who didn't sacrifice. Early Christian historian Sazaman says quote, although Julian was anxious to advance paganism by every means, yet he deemed it the height of imprudence to employ force or vengeance against those who refused to sacrifice. Yet Julian wasn't above trying to coax or trick his contemporaries into sacrificial offerings. One account says that when it came time for the Roman soldiers, many of whom are Christians, to collect their annual payments, they found their gold stacked on a table next to a bowl of incense. Before physically taking possession of their payment, they first had to throw some incense in a nearby fire. Most of the soldiers, totally unaware of what was taking place, basically said, okay, whatever, and they threw some incense into the fire and took their money. And then, in what I find to be a hilarious bait and switch, when these soldiers blessed their food and offered thanksgiving to God, They were called out as apostates because just moments earlier they had offered a sacrifice to the pagan gods. It's said that when these soldiers realized how they'd been tricked, they proclaimed Julian a cheat, and they threw down their gold, offering themselves to be martyred as faithful Christians. This again, if true, was not the response Julian wanted. He was not going to give the Catholic Church more martyrs. In preparation for his Persian campaign before leaving Constantinople, Julian came upon Bishop Maris of Chalcedon. Bishop Maris was blind, but when he realized he was in the presence of the emperor of Rome, he let loose a torrent of insults. The old blind bishop called him impious, an apostate, an atheist. And Julian just laughed and reminded the old man that the god of the Galileans would never cure him of his blindness. In response, Maris began praising the Lord for taking away his sight so that he would never have to look upon Julian's impious face. Julian apparently had no rebuttal for such an insult and simply walked away in silence. Now, any other emperor of Rome might have had the bishop executed where he stood, but not Julian. For reasons already discussed, he had other ways of dealing with the Galileans. On June 17, 362, Julian issued a law while traveling through Turkey. According to the Theodosian Code, it prevented Christians from being employed as teachers throughout the entire empire. In Julian's own writings on the law, He justified it as preserving the teachings of Homer and Herodotus since they could only be properly interpreted and taught by the pagans. He mused that Christians should stick to the churches and keep to the teachings of Matthew and Luke. Taking control of academia is an age-old tactic for transforming an up-and-coming generation. First, win over the teachers. Christians obviously were furious over the law, and even some pagans joined in declaring it unjust. Others saw Julian's legal maneuver as brilliant. Julian himself no doubt saw it the same way when he closed his thoughts on the new law by saying, One ought to teach the silly Christian rather than punish him. The maddening effect this law had upon the Christian communities inspired more Passio tales of yet more martyrs that there just simply is no historical evidence for. Horrific deeds sprung up all over that were supposed to have been committed by Julian himself. And this period of pseudo-fictional martyrdoms came in time to be referred to as Julianization. But if the Christian accounts of torture and martyrdom were exaggerated or fabricated, their claims of desecration of their churches were not. All over the empire, with newfound spirit and Gaul, pagan worshipers entered Christian churches where they ripped down the crucifixes and replaced them with the temple gods. Flutes and tambourines replaced the chanting and prayers, and animal sacrifices replaced the body and blood. On October 22nd, 362 in modern-day Turkey, a temple with a huge statue of Zeus caught fire, destroying everything. No one knows how the fire was started, but everyone had their favorite culprits. St. John Chrysostom thought that it was a bolt of lightning from God, which actually has some witness testimony backing it up. Ammianus said it was probably started by a careless philosopher who forgot to put out his candles. Julian was convinced that it was started by the Christians, and as a punishment for their crimes against Zeus, he closed the great church in Antioch, which was built by his own uncle, Constantine the Great. Julian's stay in Antioch was recorded to be unpleasant. The great population of Christians had had enough of his plotting against them, and the pagan community had grown weary of his massive, reoccurring animal sacrifices. He was openly mocked for being a philosopher and a bookworm instead of an emperor, and everyone made fun of his beard. It was just out of place for the day's fashions. His huge army that was intended to fight the Persians were all guests in the city and consuming its resources, filling its homes, emptying its watering holes. This pagan imperial entourage was altogether unwanted. In turn, on March 5th, Julian left Antioch for his campaign against the Persians with nothing but contempt for the citizens of Antioch. He, in fact, went so far as to write an entire essay on everything that's wrong with them. On the war march, Julian ran into yet more hostility from his own troops. Many of them carried the Christogram, that same image on their standards that Constantine was told to use in his dream that he might conquer his enemies. Enraged at the sight, Julian ordered the standard bearers to replace them with pagan imagery. Many refused, and some were said to be made martyrs on the spots, but no one knows for sure. The only thing that can be said for certain was that Julian was losing the support of his own soldiers and generals. Prior to battle, reminiscent, though antithetical, to his uncle Constantine, Julian tried to entreat the gods to his side by offering sacrifices to the moon goddess, Luna. However, two omens befell Julian's army that caused concern among the pagans still loyal to him. On April 7th, According to Ammianus, they came upon a slain lion, and later, a soldier had died from being struck by a bolt of lightning. Reaching the Tigris and the heart of Persia, Julian began conquering smaller cities. But at the Battle of Samara, near modern-day Baghdad, Julian's army came under attack, and supposedly, in haste, Julian grabbed his sword but failed to don any mail. With his army taken by surprise, Julian allegedly threw himself into the melee, where he received a wound that punctured his intestines and his liver. And he lived, hemorrhaging for three days. On the third day, his body finally failed him. Immediately, murmurs of an assassination plot by Christian contemporaries rose up from inside his own army. And it's not that far-fetched to think that a Roman emperor who made so many enemies would be assassinated. And let's face it. Roman emperors have a long and noble tradition of being assassinated. But those closest to him maintain that he received his fatal wounds in battle. And so here passes the life of Julian the Apostates. Just before leaving Persia, Julian supposedly made inroads into the Jewish communities of his empire. He asked them why they do not resume their sacrifices to the God of the Old Testament. And they reminded him, that they were not permitted to offer sacrifice until they rebuilt their temple. Julian, of course, without missing a beat, offered to rebuild the temple for them. And in doing so, he would not only counteract the words of Christ from the New Testament, but he would also reinforce another religion that was at odds with the Galileans. And so, the third temple in Jerusalem, under direct orders from Julian the Apostate, went under construction. But strange things began occurring that prevented its completion. From Ammianus, quote, Julian thought to rebuild at an extravagant expense the proud temple once at Jerusalem and committed this task to Olympias of Antioch. Alypius set vigorously to work and was seconded by the governor of the province when fearful balls of fire breaking out near the foundations continued their attacks till the workmen, after repeated scorchings, could approach no more and he gave up the attempt, end quote. No one knows if the fires were deliberately set or not, but in the end, the fires were so persistent that construction was halted and abandoned altogether. The temple story is fascinating in that it sums up much of what Julian was as an emperor. In his short reign, less than two years, he sought to reestablish a religion of old to replace the one that had supplanted the faith of his fathers. And though he technically had the means and the power to do so, he was beset with problem after problem. In the end, the temple was never built, and paganism forever died out of the empire. Julian's immediate successor, Jovian, who was a member of the Imperial Guard, used his first act as emperor to sign a peace treaty with the Persians and get the hell back to Rome before their army was completely destroyed. Jovian then officially recognized the validity of the Nicene Creed, the same creed adopted by Constantine the Great, and further, he made pagan magic and divination again illegal. Julian's legacy is one of notable nothingness. He isn't remembered for his philosophy. He didn't conquer Persia. He didn't revert Roman society back to the pagan pantheon. And he didn't marginalize Christianity. He didn't rebuild the temple. Any progress he made in the Roman bureaucracy was simply reversed by his immediate successors. Ironically, one of his lasting legacies is that of a persecutor of Christians, a killer, a torturer, and a martyr maker, a legacy which he desperately tried to avoid and one which is almost assuredly untrue. The tragedy that was the life of Julian the Apostate began with the death of the man who in one fell swoop converted the Roman Empire from paganism to Christianity. And then at the age of six, he saw the systematic massacre of his entire family, followed then by the death of his own child and wife. His apostasy, the loss of his religion, is perhaps a result of his circumstance. He recognized it himself in his 20s, but the seeds were sown far earlier. As Julian lay in bed dying, his friends tell of him attempting to die a philosopher's death, reminiscent of Socrates, where one discourses on the meaning of life and the immortality of the soul as they slowly lose consciousness. But there is another account, one that is probably apocryphal, and it says that in the last moments of the apostate's life, as he released his dying breath, He uttered the words, You have won, Galilean. trying to keep an eye on you and I don't know if I can do it. Oh no, I've said too The song Losing My Religion by R.E.M. is one of my favorite songs of all time. And that really awesome cover is done by a band called The Rescues. If you go on YouTube and you Google The Rescues, you'll see all their stuff. They're absolutely incredible. And I owe them a huge thank you for permission to use this song. So go check them out and I'll link to all of their stuff on the show notes of this episode. I also need to give a shout out, of course, as always, to my kid sister, Courtney, for the incredible cover art she does with this show. If you are in need of freelance work, you can go to cjdejulius.myportfolio.com. If you want to get a hold of me, you can shoot me an email at julius at gmail.com or you can go to the show Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and type in Written in Blood History, you'll find me. Or my Twitter handle is at sdejulius. I'd love to hear from you guys and as always, I love talking history. And if you have a moment, I would certainly appreciate a rating review wherever you listen. Those rating and reviews, they do something to the algorithm that bump a podcasters show to the top of the, the charts. So, Again, I say this every time. I don't know how it works. All I know is that those ratings and reviews, especially five-star reviews, really make a big difference in how we appear on those charts. So I'd appreciate it. And and don't only review my podcast. Whatever podcast you listen to, give them a rating or review. We all appreciate it. If you would like to become a patron of the show and help offset the cost of research material and production costs, you can go to patreon.com slash Blood. There you can sign up for... Whatever size donation works for you. Any amount is absolutely appreciated. It's the lifeblood behind the show. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode about Julian the Apostate. I think his life is absolutely fascinating. And as always, I'll be back in two weeks with an almost episode. We'll see you guys later. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War. But half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World